Well, it's New Year's Eve day, the end of the year. People are thinking about uh, new things, fresh starts, resolutions, changing their lives for the better, um, transformation, and that's where our text is too as we start in Luke chapter 18. We're continuing on where Matt, Pastor Matt left off a couple of weeks ago, uh, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18 and going through verse 30. We're going get to know a, get to know a man who is interested in doing something new, so that's, that's seasonally appropriate. I'm going to read the whole chunk, and then we'll kind of go through it and break it down bit by bit. So this is Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's consider the context here. Um, We've just previously had the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went into the temple to pray, or the the synagogue to pray, right, starting in verse 10. And the Pharisee, he recited his list of works and the good deeds he'd done. He compared himself to other people, specifically the tax collector there. And the tax collector instead admitted his sin simply before God and asked him for mercy. The ruler here in our section is a lot like the Pharisee, comparing himself to other people. He's going to list off his works, compare himself as a way of measuring himself up against righteousness. So we're going to go from that abstract parable of the two men in the temple to a concrete example here for a person asking a question. And remember who that parable was directed at? It says in verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, which as we'll see is the the category that our, our ruler today falls into. So verses 18 and 19, a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. The ruler asks one of the most fundamental questions that we have to answer, and presumably we have all answered as born-again believers in Christ. There's probably no other question that is actually more important and that a Christian should be so able and ready to answer when somebody asks it of us. But also, in answering this question, our duty is also to first help the desirous or the new or the unbeliever to understand that he is sinful and in need of repentance and then you have that grace that Christ provides. Without that, there is no salvation because you can't receive what you don't seek, right? So maybe answering it directly, immediately, isn't as useful to the asker as using it as an opportunity for deeper teaching and introspection, which is what Christ does. The man is seeking out Jesus' counsel, right? And he's seeking out an answer. And unlike some other instances we've seen in Scripture, the asker doesn't plan to trick Jesus, right? He's not trying to undermine him here. He's actually asking a question he wants to know the answer to, or at least it seems that way at, at first blush. So we can tell this because he's disappointed when the answer that Jesus gives him isn't the one that he wants. 
So this ruler has an earnestness about him. He really does want to know how to inherit eternal life. This man's problem isn't that he doesn't want to know. It's that he doesn't want to know on Jesus' terms. He wants to know on his own terms. So what do we know about this guy? He's a ruler, it says in verse 18. He's very wealthy, it says in verse 23. He knows he doesn't have eternal life already or he wouldn't be asking about it. So he's aware that something is wrong with his life, that he's missing something. And we know that he recognizes Jesus' authority to provide him an answer to his question. And we know this probably because he asks it of him and partly because he calls him good teacher, which is an elevated title that he wouldn't just give to, to somebody willy-nilly. So he con- and Jesus confirms this equation of himself with God. So the ruler knows Jesus has the authority to answer him, okay? But as is often the case, Jesus doesn't answer him directly. He takes kind of a roundabout approach to it. Verse 20 and 21, Jesus responds. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. That's only half of them. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So we've established this man knows that he lacks eternal life. Okay, he understands that. He knows he's missing something. Yet he also says he's kept the commandments. He's kept the law, at least according to him. So why then would he not have eternal life? Right? The only reason is that it's got to be something other than just keeping those commandments that provides it, that allows him to inherit that eternal life. There must be something else beyond the law. And surely this man, he's going to start realizing this as Jesus goes through his little teaching here to him. And it's curious to me that Jesus only provides half the commandments. Right? He gives those five Right? And it's even more curious which ones he chooses to say, and it's even more curious which ones he chooses not to say. As is often the case, Jesus teaches by omission. It forces us to fill in the blanks, right? to come to the realization ourselves. Because Jesus was a master of educational psychology. Okay? He understands that rote memorization is not very useful. Right? You might be able to memorize facts by repeating them over and over again, which could help you in jeopardy. It's not going to help you much in real life. Okay? It doesn't give you the context to apply them. Right? Jesus, on the other hand, frequently teaches by leading people to the answer themselves. They have to come to it on their own, and that provides a deeper understanding. It's the equivalent of teaching a man to fish instead of just giving him a fish for the day. Right? So Jesus could simply provide the answer to a question at any time. Okay? He chooses not to. Instead, he contextualizes it. Right? For his audience, either the person who's asking the question or the people listening in, you'll see him do this throughout Scripture. He'll, he'll tailor his answers depending on who's listening and who needs to learn what. Okay? And that kind of learning is more gratifying to the learner because, hey, I, I figured it out. You know, I was led to water, so to speak. But it's also more useful because it gives the learner a way to then apply it and have context and eventually, hopefully, be able to use it to teach others as well. <clears throat> so let's look at the commandments that Jesus recited in the context of all ten. Okay? The ones that he recites to this guy are honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay? There's something similar about all of these, which is that they're all visible. Right? People would be able to tell if this ruler had disobeyed any of those. It's hard to hide some of these. right? And they're all people-focused, right? These are the commandments that deal with how we interact with other human beings, right? The kind of things that make a man seem holy to other men, right? That might elevate him to a status like ruler of a synagogue, right? And the man says, yes, he's been able to abide by these, you know, since his youth, since his bar mitzvah, when he became a man, that sort of thing. So the last whoever many years it's been, he's abided by these. Great. Good job. So far, so good, he's probably thinking, right? He's been able to answer yes to Jesus. At any time you can do that, it's always a good thing, right? 
except Jesus is kind of setting him up. Because look at the ones that Jesus left out, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. You shall not covet. These are abridged somewhat. Um, but what do they all have in common? All right, these are much less visible things, unless you, know, unless you build a giant golden calf as an idol. I guess you'd see that. But they're easier things to hide from other men, right? Things like doubting God, loving your money, lusting, elevating anything in your heart above the position that God should inhabit there. We're pretty good at hiding these kinds of things from other people, right? But they're visible to God. Okay, and Jesus understands, or Jesus doesn't ask the ruler about these, and I think that's, that's intentional, that's purposeful. He wants the ruler to be able to answer yes initially to that first batch, because that's going to make the impact of not following these that much more profound for this man. He's going to learn his lesson well and good. <clears throat> and this is a question that Jesus has had asked of him before. Um, back in chapter 10, um, another expert, a, a well-regarded man, came and asked Jesus the same question uh, from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Of course, the man in that case did not want to do this, which is why Jesus had to follow up with the tale of the Good Samaritan. But that is another story entirely. Let's look at the summary here, what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, which pretty well sums up the five commandments that Jesus left out of his list that he gave to the ruler, doesn't it? And that same summary is what we find in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, when he's asked about the greatest commandments, right? The commandments on which Jesus says, hang all the law and the prophets. So it's fascinating that those commandments that reflect that are the ones that Jesus leaves out of his response to the ruler because those are the things Jesus knows the ruler isn't going to be able to say that he's upheld. Those are the things that the ruler lacks. And Jesus attaches to this lacking. He says in verse 22 and 23, So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Jesus makes the cost very clear. But he also makes it clear that it's only a temporary cost, which makes the ruler's sorrow about it all the more depressing to us reading this story. Jesus tells him he's going to have treasure in heaven. And if this man is truly concerned with eternal life, like he asked about, shouldn't he be more interested in that eternal treasure than in his temporary treasure on earth? It makes you wonder if he's really interested in eternal life at all, or if he's really just interested in kind of filling out the bingo card of his life as a synagogue ruler and first-rate Jew in his status among men. So the benefit is clear, as is the cost. You have to give up everything you hold dear. Not because you have to be poor to, to follow Jesus. There are a lot of portraits of the rich and poor in, in the Gospels, and it is easy to think of Jesus as only inviting the poor in, that he's always just focused on the poor, that rich people, for some reason, can't receive salvation simply because of the fact that they're rich. But that's not the case. It's not their wealth that Jesus is after, it's their hearts. In chapter 16, just a few weeks ago, we heard the story about the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. And the story was not condemning the rich man because he was a rich man, It was condemning him because there was a poor beggar named Lazarus at his gates who longed for a crumb off his table. 
And instead, the rich man did nothing about it. He chose to stay ensconced in his wealth and his purple robes behind his gates and be ignorant of Lazarus' suffering. It's what he did with it that was the issue, where his heart was. And in this ruler's case in chapter 18, Jesus is keenly aware of the fact that for this ruler, for this man, his idol is his wealth. His disobedience to those unnamed commandments, those five unnamed commandments that Jesus didn't give him, right? That they elevate God above all. Instead, this man has money or wealth in that place. And so he asks him if he's willing to give it up. He makes it pretty simple. He asks him to put his heart in the right place, to put God in the proper place in his life. And the man is sorrowful because of his wealth. And Jesus knows this because he knows our hearts. And when he spoke to people, he did so knowing their hearts, what motivates them, what their hang-ups were, right? How they needed to be helped, and what they needed laid bare in front of them. And in this ruler's case, it's his wealth. And why would his wealth be such an idol? It's not just that he likes having money, right? Think about the effort that being rich would take in that day and time, right? You've got to manage all your investments. You have to manage the people who manage your things for you, right? If your money is in investments, you've got to pay attention to markets, right? Things changing in business and politics and international relations and consumer trends and all these things. What are people buying these days? If your money's in real estate, you've got to worry about, people, are people buying more or are they renting more these days? You know? You've got to worry about demographic data. Are people moving into or out of cities and all these things, right? Are my rents at the right rates for each city that I have a property in? All this stuff, right? If your money's in things, collectibles, antiques, you've got to worry about storing stuff properly. Is the humidity correct? All this stuff. Or you've got to hire somebody to do that for you and you've got to manage him. In any case, being wealthy takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of mental effort. All right, the more people you employ or who serve you, the more cogs in your daily system that you have to be aware of and keep well-oiled. Right? Being wealthy takes a lot of attention, and that takes attention away from what should be at the top of his priority list, which is God. Right? So this particular wealthy ruler wants to know how to get eternal life. Okay? So Jesus asks him, pretty much literally, if he's willing to put his money where his mouth is. And we see in verse 22, this, this is the childlikeness that we learned about in verse 17 where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will by no means enter it. He's asking the ruler to have faith like a child, right? Because this is how a child would receive the kingdom of God. They would give up everything else. They'd forget everything else, right, and follow him. You know, have you ever seen a, a kid playing and suddenly they see something that's more interesting, right? My kids could be playing with their favorite toys in the whole world and a puppy walks by and all of a sudden they are all in on that dog, right? They have forgotten totally about what they were playing with, whatever game they were playing, whatever toys they were playing with. It doesn't matter. Their focus is totally on that, right? Their old desires are forgotten, right? They don't put their... And kids, they wouldn't put their money in a trust temporarily where they go follow Jesus, you know, keep it there just in case the whole savior thing doesn't work out for them. They can come back to it, right? They don't need a fallback plan, they get devoted totally, right? And this is what Jesus is asking the guy for. And he's sorrowful because he doesn't want to be all in on Jesus, right? He's after accomplishments. He's after things, efforts. He wants to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. He wants to follow the law into salvation, but it's not enough. In Romans 10, we see what really earns eternal life. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 says... Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there is the checkbox for our ruler that he wants to fill out. Righteousness is not by the law, but by faith. Paul extends on this and affirms this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, <clears throat> talking about his own past and who he was before he was converted. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This wretchedness the ruler seeks is through efforts, through works, through the law. But just as Paul's blamelessness in the law, as a follower of it, did him no good, it was moot compared to the grace and righteousness found by faith in Jesus, so too is this ruler's blamelessness useless and moot compared to what Christ, what God, really asked of him. And what Jesus asked of him made this guy very sad. Verses 24 through 27. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Some people have tried really hard to overthink this section, saying there's some kind of a gate in the walls of Jerusalem for which there's no real evidence that a camel, maybe a small camel, could squeeze through barely if it tried really, really hard, which even if it were true, that camel's not coming out the other side unscathed, right? And certainly not with a rider on it. And even so, it's still harder than that for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus is really relaying a similar proverb that was used in Persia about how it's impossible for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. There weren't any elephants near Jerusalem. They used a camel. That's the biggest animal they would have known. In any case, it's pretty clear to everybody listening that what he's saying is that's impossible, which is why everyone freaks out and says, who then can be saved? Some of them might be trying to figure out how to build a bigger needle. I don't know. (laughs) Jesus... You know, despite having just made this extremely worrisome statement, basically said, flat out, can't be done, he responds with so much grace in this moment, right? That things which are impossible with men are possible with God. He's reinforcing, for those listening to his message to the ruler, that you can do all kinds of things based in the world of man, 
You can become an authority. You can become a ruler. You can become very wealthy. You can even make it look to other men like you are holy. You can even keep some of the commandments by not openly stealing or murdering. But the real bummer for this ruler who wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life is that there is nothing you can do in the world of men that will gain you eternal life that comes only through God, through Christ. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And this man has to realize this fact before Jesus can really answer his question. He says, you have to give up your human-focused hopes and aspirations, whatever it is that you're wrapped up in, instead of God, and follow him. There's only one way to do the impossible, and that's to let God do it. And Jesus is the only way. And that happens to be what Peter and the others have, in fact, done. So good job, Peter. Verses 28 through 30. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. That's just what he asked the ruler to do, right? So he said to them, verse 29, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So, I've always kind of identified with Peter to some extent, right? He's emotional. He's prone to outbursts. He's a little clueless sometimes. Things go over his head a lot. Sometimes he fumbles when the game is on the line, so to speak. I get that. I like Peter. He's a real human being. And I don't know exactly what tone Peter used to ask this question. It may have been a, a worried one, thinking, so we did that, right? Tell me we did that. Or it could have been a holier-than-thou one. He could have been thinking, yeah, we totally did that. We nailed it. Good job, us. Or, based on the surrounding verses, it was probably more likely a curious one, right? Like, we did that, so what happens next? Really, he kind of wants the same answer the other guy is asking, asking for. Excuse me. In fact, in the version of this incident that happens in the Gospel of Matthew, Peter then asks, What then will there be for us? He follows up his statement with that question. So I think it's safe to say that he's curious about exactly what it means that he's done this. Maybe he wants a little reassurance. And Jesus provides it to him. He's reassuring here. He's even comforting, really. He recognizes that Peter is right, that he has, in fact, left all. And he says it's going to be okay. And not just okay, just like he tells the ruler that selling his belongings and yielding his life to Jesus will bring him treasure in heaven, he reassures Peter that he'll have more in the present time and also eternal life. How's that for a bonus? But the key for Peter, just as it is for the ruler, is in the motivation, right? It's in the why. Verse 29 is the key there, right? For the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't ask the ruler to give up his possessions in verse 22 just for fun, but for the kingdom of God. He asked him to do it for him. He even told him that he'd have treasure in heaven to ease the burden. I'll make it an easier choice for you by telling you it's going to be even better later. He did it so that the ruler could be unencumbered by that huge strain on his heart and his time and his mental capacity and be able to do what Jesus asked him to do next, which was follow me. Because being rich takes all that time and effort. Having all that authority causes stress 
and it takes time. <clears throat> and Jesus said, you need to get that idol out of your life. Jesus' answer then to the ruler is not that he needs to sell everything. That's just the manifestation of the answer that Jesus is giving him. The answer that he gives is that he needs to put God first. And in his case, that happens to mean selling off his stuff. It's not about the what, it's about the why. Do you remember our, our church vision circle? <clears throat> it's all about the why in the middle, right? To glorify God, right? The particulars of the how and the what, and the what they all stem from that, that central tenet, that central why. So for some of us, that's going to look like selling our possessions and giving it to the poor and following Jesus in a literal sense. For some of us, that's going to look like making time on Sunday to teach the kids in school, in Sunday school. For some of us, it's going to look like coming in on the weekend and helping Marcus replace a bunch of light bulbs. Hint, hint. <laughs> Listen carefully to your call. <laughs> but all those different things, they ought to have the same root, right? For the sake of the kingdom of God. And by the way, you can look at Jesus' response to this guy, or to, to Peter, I should say, and think, you know, these guys gave everything up, and Jesus says they're going to have many times more in this present time, and that doesn't sound right, because aren't they like poor vagabonds wandering around? But think about the lives that they were leading, these guys. They left their homes, but they're traveling around with Jesus in this huge crowd. They're going into cities. People are putting them up in their homes, sheltering them, feeding them. When Jesus sent his 70 initially to prepare the way toward Jerusalem, they sought out believers in the cities, and Jesus told them, stay with, stay with them, right? And in effect, these people ended up with lots of homes in many cities all over Judea, right? And these disciples had left their brothers, but how many more brothers have they gained in this huge crowd of disciples loving and following Jesus? So in that sense, they had food, they had safety, they were cared for, and most of all, they had Jesus in their midst, Right? So I would say that that compares pretty well to whatever life they had left behind to follow him, to say nothing of also gaining eternal life. <clears throat> this ruler wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Okay? He was very rich, according to verse 23, and a ruler. He had everything except eternal life. This is his thing that he's trying to check off his bucket list, right? his last thing. And so... He wanted it to be added on to his pile of achievements, right, and belongings. But the way Jesus responds to him, it strikes a chord with him because he says, you still lack one thing, right? That's the, the, it's the lack of something that's going to nag at this guy who has so much. It shows us that no matter how much he has, he hasn't got eternal life yet. This is a man who is used to getting things, right? Whether through his money or through his authority or whatever it is, he probably doesn't have a lot of trouble getting whatever it is that he wants at any given time. And now he lacks something. And maybe this is the only thing that he lacks in his life or that he feels he lacks in his life. And he wants to know what he's got to do to get it. And his assumption is that there's a way, a set of boxes to check, you know, deeds to be done, whatever it is. Indeed, his question is, what do I need to do? And Jesus tells him in order to get, he actually has to give up. Because salvation is not something we tack on to the rest of our lives, right? It has to be at the very center the very core, right? That's why Jesus' response to Peter is so profound because the disciples didn't add Jesus onto their lives as fishermen, right, or tax collectors. They left it all behind. They gave it all up to follow him. They didn't stay on the Sea of Galilee after meeting him and say, yeah, I met that guy once, right? They heeded his call to them. Jesus was just teaching to the disciples about this in chapter 17 in the context of recognizing the coming of the kingdom, 
As Jesus put it in Luke chapter 17, verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it, which echoes what he told his disciples in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, when he explained the cost of following him. Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Note again the why behind this, right? Jesus doesn't ask his followers to give up their past lives and desires for the sake of giving them up just to be poor, to be an ascetic, but for the sake of him, right? For the kingdom of God. And so the answer to the man's question the answer to the question that all of us believers should be prepared and able to answer whenever it comes up, and it will come up, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is the same as it has always been, which is to love God with all your heart, your mind, your body, and your soul, and trust in His Son, Jesus, who died and rose again and is the one true and only way to everlasting life. He makes no bones about this being difficult. He actually says it's impossible, right, to inherit eternal life, except with God, right? It's impossible for trying to do it ourselves. It's a darn good thing that we don't have to. As it turns out, Jesus does answer the ruler's initial question directly. He just takes a long way to get there, right? The ruler's question in verse 18, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is not answered until verse 30, where Christ illustrates exactly how you receive eternal life. It's those who have left house or parents or brother or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who have given up other things to put God at the front. But in order to get there, Jesus brought the ruler as a teacher, as a good teacher does, and he brings those listening in, the crowd around him, on a little intellectual journey to understand not just what or how, but why, so that someday maybe they'll be able to use that and apply it to others, and teach someone else. So I'd like to think that someone that day was changed by the grace of Christ's teaching. Someone turned and repented and understood that whatever his or her idol was in his or her life shouldn't be there. Reordered his or her priorities to put God at the start, at the top, where he belongs, and was willing to inherit what the, what the ruler was not willing to, eternal life. And I know that God's true root is every bit as powerful now as it has ever been, and there's no time like the present to make that choice, right? It's the new year. There's no time like the present to give yourself over totally, even if, like the ruler, you thought you already had. And that's the key for most of us here. How many of us, looking back on our lives, can say, yes, I've upheld all those things, not just the five that mentioned, that Jesus mentioned in his response, but all ten, and not just beyond that, but also believed and through faith in God and through Christ's grace, have actually received eternal life. How many of us have actually put God first? Who have said, okay, I will come and follow you. Whatever that looks like, whether it's selling things, whether it's volunteering, whether it's working in your job and evangelizing there, whether it's going on a mission, whatever it is, how many of us can say, I have done it like Peter can? How many of us can say, we have left all and followed you? How many of us want to hear Jesus say to us that we will receive many times more in this present time and in the life to come eternal life. I just want to hear him say, good job. 
So, put God first. Let's go and follow him in the new year. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us here safely into this building. Lord, we ask for your protection as we go out from here, Lord, that your word will continue to nourish our hearts far beyond this moment of this day. Father, that you will continue to embed yourself in our lives, that we would have the courage to go out and share your word, Father, your grace, your faith, what has made you so tremendous, God. We love you, Father. Thank you for saving us and being willing to accept any who come to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.